Okay, so we're going to be looking at the sufficiency of the scriptures today. I'm going to cover what the scriptures are and what is meant by the scriptures being sufficient. So before we begin, let's let's pray one more time. Lord God, we we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that this room is filled with people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. That you saved us, you've turned us from our sin and set us upon the rock of Christ. You made us your people. And we know you. And you are our God and you have given to us a word, the scriptures, in our language, that we can read it and we can understand it. And, and Father, you have not left us in the dark. Help us now, Father. Help me now as I seek to preach your word. Help me to be faithful. To not say what shouldn't be said and to say what should be said. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to deal with what the scriptures are and what is meant by the scriptures being sufficient. So first I want to cover what the scriptures are. The way that the, the word scripture is used in the Bible means that it's from God. The scriptures come from God. They're not just writings and they're not just writings by men that are blessed by God. The scriptures are the very word of God. So the scriptures come from God and they are authoritative. And they are the very word of God themselves. But how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Is it just because we say that it is God's word? How do we know that the Bible is truly scripture? Well, we need to begin with the fact that the scriptures claim to be God's word. God, in his word, has declared the scriptures to be his word. And we see that throughout the Bible. We see it from the the first three verses of the Bible in, in the book of Genesis. The first three verses of Genesis say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness, or end darkness, was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is even before we were created. This was even before mankind. This is God's account of creation of the heavens and the earth. The only way for us to have known this was by revelation from God. We couldn't have even known this other than through God revealing it to man. This had to have been told to us from God. So the scriptures, God's word, is not man's account of who God is. It's God's account. It's God's testimony of who he is as he's revealing it to us, as he's revealing who he is and what he has done to man. They're not the testimony of, they're not man's testimony about God. It's God's testimony of himself and what he has done. And throughout the scriptures, we see that they testify to be the word of God. We see it in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We see it in Isaiah chapter one and verse two. It says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. In Jeremiah chapter one, verse four, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, in Hosea chapter one and verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. And we see this throughout the prophets, Micah, Haggai, Zechariah. Malachi, throughout all the prophets, it is God speaking to us through these men. It's God speaking to us in his word. Isaiah says it like this. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The psalmist says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. So this is God's word. 
It, it says it like that. This is God's mouth. We know God is a spirit. He doesn't have a mouth like we do. But it's showing that the scriptures are not for us to view as something that's separate from who God is. It's, it's as personal as it can be. This is, this is God's mouth. As you open up the word of God and as you read it, this is God's very mouth that you're reading. It's God's word. It's true. It's not funneled through man. It's not filtered through man. And it's not man's word. You, you get a gospel tract, that's man's word, and you have some scripture in there. Where the scripture is, that is God's very word. The Apostle Peter said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. Paul also said the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. So here we see the Holy Spirit spoke, the Lord spoke, this is God's mouth. Hebrews begins saying, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So it's not always as clear as when we look at the prophets, but you can look at every one of the books of the Bible, all 66 books, and you can see God's signature on each one of those books. We know it's God's word. God has revealed that to us people. Christianity is really a religion of God revealing himself to us through his word at first and then to us individually as he has saved each one of us and he puts it in his heart. He reveals that to us that this is God's word that he has given to us. All 66 books. So what we're dealing with here is that the Bible is either God's word or it's a lie. We have to we have to reckon that it's either God's word or, or, or it's a lie in any book that claims to be God's word and is not is, is not a good book. You, if, if you're not going to say that the Bible is God's word, you cannot say that it's a good book because any book that says it's God's word and is just a word of man. That's a lie. That's blasphemy. That's heresy. That, that, that is not true. The Bible claims to be God's word. This is an amazing claim because we receive it as God's word because we recognize that it truly is what it says it is. It is God's word. But this is an amazing claim to claim to be truly the word of God from the beginning to the end. I wouldn't call any book that claims to be God's word and is not a good book. I would not. But the Bible claims to be God's word, and that is a true claim. Listen to how Peter called all of Paul's epistles scripture. It's in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Here, Peter called Paul's epistles scripture. It says, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles. He's talking about as in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter's talking about Paul's epistles, and he's acknowledging that there are people who twist his letters, his letters, and and he says, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Here Peter called all of Paul's epistles scripture, all 13 letters. All of them are scripture. Unless you think that there's a 14th one that that Paul would have written in the scriptures, but all of Paul's letters are called scripture. Paul said about his own words in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, he said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, 
you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. About his own words, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul called his own epistles, not the word of, not the word of men, but the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, those are two passages taken from two different places in the Bible. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. It says there, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the second one is taken from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. So here we have Deuteronomy and Luke. Deuteronomy was written by Moses. Luke was written by a man who wasn't even an apostle. And they both are considered scripture. Moses' writings, Luke's writings, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. We can also look at Jesus' own testimony of the scriptures. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he testified to the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted a lot of Old Testament scriptures. Our Lord did. He referenced the Old Testament, but you know what? When you look at Jesus' writings, at what, at what Jesus said, well, he didn't write it, right? But at what Jesus preached, at what he said, he never quoted man. We quote man. But he never quoted any other authority other than himself. He never quoted people. He never quoted men or any kind of authority, but he quoted the Old Testament, God's word. He quoted his very word. He quoted the scriptures. And then when you look at how Jesus spoke about the scriptures, it's significant to what we're looking at now. Remember when the, when the devil tempted Jesus after Jesus had fasted for 40 days? He was tired. He was hungry. He was weary. And the devil came to him and, and tempted him in three specific ways. And every one of those temptations, Jesus refused to yield. Jesus never sinned one time. He is our sinless Savior. And every one of those temptations, Jesus was tempted like you and I, but he never sinned. He never yielded to the devil's temptations, the devil himself. But what was it that Jesus said each time? It is written. Each time Jesus said, it is written. And then he quoted the, 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 the particular Old Testament passage that he, that he took that from. It is written. Jesus spoke about the scriptures in this way. Again, we see that in Matthew 21 when he rebuked those who bought and sold in the temple. Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Saying it is written means that the scriptures have authority. It is written. Not, not it's written, but we can add to what was written. No, it's already written, and there's nothing we can add to the scriptures. It is written, and nothing will be taken away from it. It means that the scriptures are authoritative. It is written, and when we come to the scriptures, we must yield to what has been written to us and receive it, recognize that it's from God, receive it as if it's from God and yield to it. Yield to what has been written. It's already happened and it's already been given to us. So it is written means it is authoritative, meaning what it says is true, what is what it says is from God and we must yield to it. It is written means that God's word is unchanging. You can't change it. You can't add to it. You cannot take away from it. It has already been written past tense. It is written means God's word is trustworthy. We can trust it. 
I can't trust in something that I'm that I'm unsure about. If something is uncertain, I, I, I can't trust it. If something is hazy, if I don't know about it that well, I'm not going to place my trust into that thing. Well, God's word already had been written, and it was written a while back. It's been written, it's been proven and tested, and we know that it's true. If it was not true, it would have been proven a long time ago. Because many men have hated God's word. Many men have hated our God. Many men have hated God's people. And if it was not true, they would have proved it a long time ago. So it means that it's trustworthy. We can trust in God's word. And also it's final. No changing. No changing needs to be done to it. God's word is final. Well, this is like what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. It's not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So when it comes to God's word, when we are confronted with God's word, we must yield to it and submit to it and receive it as God's word and also allow it to change us, allow it to work in us and allow God to do his work through his word in his people. If we don't, well, we'll be broken by God's word. It says it's like a fire. We'll be consumed by God's word. And on that day, the day of judgment, God's word will consume us if we do not yield to it today. On that day, we'll be broken by God's word if we do not allow it to work in us and change us today. So how do we know that the, the 66 books of the Bible that we have today, that it, or, 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 or how do we know how it came to be God's word? How do we know how God's word, as we have it today, came to be God's word? Because it had to it had to begin somewhere. Well, was there was there this secret committee of men that met behind closed doors and they all went behind into this room and nobody ever saw them for months and months. And everybody was on the outside of the room, just wondering, waiting, waiting for God's word, wondering what was going on in there, wondering what they were going to include in God's word or or exclude from God's word. And then after so much time, then they come out and they say, here it is. We have God's word for you. Here's what the word is going to be. Beginning in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation. And, and they gave it to us and, and people gladly received it. And they, and they said, this is what you need to receive. This is what you need to believe as God's word. Is that what, what happened? Was there some secret committee that gave us God's word? Well, I'm not a big fan of committees. I like what A.W. Tozer said about about committees, he said that he wants to uh, see one more committee formed, and it's a committee to abolish all committees. Van Savner said, a committee is a company of the incompetent chosen by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. So committees have not been a good thing in, in history. And no, committees did not give us God's word. The Roman Catholics did not give us God's word. If anything, the Roman Catholics have been opposed to God's word being in the language of the people. They wanted to parse it out to God's people however they saw fit, filter it to God's people, but keep God's people blind from God's word. It did not come from the Roman Catholics. It did not come from a secret committee. God's word did not come from any kind of religion or any kind of human organization. The 40 authors who wrote God's word in, in 66 different books written over a period of 15 centuries was not man's invention. It wasn't. It wasn't man's invention of, of God and of what God's word should be. It was it's it's God's word to us. It's God's word 
to his people, as the scriptures say, in time past, he spoke by the prophets, but now he speaks to us through his son. The early church had always recognized the Old Testament scriptures to be God's word from the beginning of the early church. All the way back, all the way back to the early church's times. And the early church quickly recognized those scriptures that were to be included in the New Testament canon. I already read it, but I'll read it again. It's there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It's what Paul said. He said, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word, you when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believed. So when they received it, it didn't take time for them to say, you know what? OK, well, we guess this, this is God's word from the beginning. They knew it was God's word. God's people recognize the scriptures to truly be God's word. J.I. Packer said, the church did not make the New Testament canon any more than Isaac Newton made gravity. The early church recognized those books which are which God's fingerprints were all over. And God's people recognized God's word. Jesus Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How do his sheep hear his voice? Well, it's not through some mystical experience. It's not through hearing Jesus' words audibly. It's as they read his word, they hear Jesus' voice in them. It's by reading the scriptures. That's how we know God's word. When you pray, you talk to God. When you read the scriptures, God speaks to us. And when we read the scriptures, we recognize this is not a man-made book. This, th- this book is truly the word of God. And there is debate as to whether the original manuscripts are inspired by God word for word or if it's just the, the thoughts and ideas that were carried over, carried over to, to, to those who wrote the scriptures. That's the verbal plenary inspiration versus the dynamic inspiration. So what was it? Was it truly God's words in, in the, in the original manuscripts or is it just his ideas? his thoughts, and then those men kind of just wrote whatever they thought was was best or whatever was really something that God would have them to write. Well, when you look at the scriptures, we see that it's actual words that are inspired. In Galatians 3, verse 16, we have the difference between the word seed, singular, and seeds, plural. So whether it's a singular word or a plural word, that that matters. It's inspired by God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, in today's vernacular, that's going to be one dotting of an I or one crossing of a T will by no means pass from the law till all of it is fulfilled. The Lord God said to Isaiah, I have put my words in your mouth. I have put my words in your mouth, not my ideas into your into your mind and then you go and write however you think you should write it. It's God's word that we have, God's word that we have in the original languages. That's why it really matters what English translation we have, because not just anyone will do. Any English translation is not going to be a good translation just by virtue of it being published and being at the bookstore. That's another reason why I would not recommend the NIV translation to people as their primary Bible translation. Because the NIV translation is really a, a, a dynamic translation. It comes, it, it doesn't come word for word, but it comes 
basically idea upon idea, and then people wrote or translated into the English language. So I'm going to recommend it as, as a primary translation. So the scriptures really show us that what we have here is God's word. God's word, not thought for thought, but word for word. You can take it to the bank. The scriptures are God's word. And since what we have here is God's written word, and it is authoritative, unchanging, trustworthy, and final, well, that means that it's sufficient for us exactly the way it is. Nothing needs to be changed. It's not lacking in any way. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. It's not missing anything. And then also there's, there isn't any unnecessary information in God's word. Nothing needs to be taken, taken out of it. It doesn't have anything extra that is unnecessary for us, for our growth, for our salvation, for God to work in us. Every part of the word of God is true. There's nothing in God's word that we can do without. So do we see God's word that way? If, if you see God's word that way, well, how is your response to God's word? How do you handle God's word? You have God's word written to you. Yes, it is a lot of books, 66 books. Yes, it is a lot of reading. But have you read all of God's word? Have you read all of the scriptures? If you haven't read all of God's word, well, what needs to be the response? Well, I would say get to it. Read all of God's word and read it often. Read it regularly. Read it daily. Consume your mind with God's word, because if you don't have God's word, what else do you have but man's word, fallen fallen man's word? If it's or since it's God's word and it's authoritative, it's trustworthy and final. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be taken away from it. Well, that sounds like God's word is perfect. God's word is perfect just the way God is. Look at Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7. Psalm 19 and verse 7. What does it say there about God's word? That it's perfect. God's word is perfect. That means that it's entirely complete. It's entirely sufficient and perfect. It's, it's all we need, dear ones. God's word. It's all we need. It's perfect. Nothing is to be added. Nothing is to be taken away. The Lord told us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, it says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Nothing is to be added to it. Nothing is to be taken away from it. That passage there in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
And then Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. When you look at the scriptures, what the scriptures say about the scriptures themselves, you can see that they have the same characteristics about them as God does. Characteristics about the scriptures are true characteristics about God himself. We know that God is perfect. We read that in the word. Our God is perfect. But when we look at us, at mankind, we're not. Man is not perfect. But God's word is perfect. We know that God is unchanging. He does not change. When we look at us, we know we change. Man changes. But God's word also is unchanging. It's eternal. We know that God is pure. And when we look at us, we realize man is not pure. But God's word, God's word is pure. The characteristics of of God's word are the same as the characteristics of God himself. Because this is God's word. We're not to separate it from who God is. It's not a, a separate thing from God. It's God's very word. It's an amazing thing that it's that, that we can hold a Bible in our hands and, and have God's word in our hands in, in written form. That's an amazing thing. It's also amazing that this is God's word that we're holding in our hands. The two areas where the sufficiency of scripture is attacked is, is going to be right here. People will add to God's word and people will take away from it. Because they're not satisfied with God's word. They add to scripture by adding their traditions and by adding their new revelations to it. And we can we can look at at this. Those who have looked at it will see Roman Catholics have added to God's word by adding tradition, even by adding new revelation. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, all these religions that call themselves Christian and they're not. They all add to God's word. They all take from God's word. Even the charismatics will add new revelations and they'll go off seeking those new revelations rather than being content in God's word finding it as sufficient for them in all areas of of their worship to God. They add to God's word. They don't see it as sufficient. And then they also take away from Scripture. How do they take away from Scripture? But by not teaching it faithfully. By not teaching all of Scripture. By not teaching those parts that are, are difficult. And those parts that may be hard to understand where there isn't too much clarity that God has revealed to us through them. They take away from the Scriptures by not teaching those doctrines that they disagree with, by only teaching their pet doctrines, only teaching what doctrines accord with their own beliefs. They take from the scriptures by not teaching the whole counsel of God. We know that the Apostle Paul, he, he preached the whole counsel of God. He said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We preach all of God's word. That's why we view the, the, the expositional preaching of God's word as necessary for the church. Going to the scriptures verse by verse and book by book, book by book as, as our pastor is doing, going through Matthew, as, as those are, as, as people are teaching through the book of Genesis. That's the ideal way to preach through God's word. And every now and then we should divert and give a topical message such as what we're dealing with today. But when you're preaching through the word, expositionally, verse by verse, book by book, you make sure that you give to God's people a full a full diet of God's word, a healthy diet of God's word. Everything is going to be preached. That's what we're seeing when we when we look at the book of Matthew. 
So let's look at what is meant by the scriptures being sufficient. When we say that the scriptures are sufficient, we're saying that all 66 books from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, that this is the full revelation from God. Nothing is to be added. Nothing is to be taken away. And that this revelation from God is sufficient for his people. It's sufficient for his people when it comes to their salvation, when it comes to their spiritual growth, and when it comes to knowing all things that God wants us to know in our worship of him. Sufficient for salvation, sufficient for spiritual growth and instruction in how we are to live as Christians. And in these areas, we're not to go outside of God's word. When we go outside of God's word in these areas, that is dangerous territory. That leads to confusion. That leads to many ways that are not biblical. Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And then the rest of it says, Converting the soul. And there's a lot that's said there, and even in the rest of that verse, and then even in the, the verses that come after it about God's word. But, but for the sake of time, we're not going to look at the rest of those passage, passages there, other than this first part of Psalm 19, verse 7. But this part right here really tells us how God's word is identified. It's identified so that we know what it is. It's identified as the law of the Lord. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. And then it tells us how it's described What's described as being perfect. A description is a certain feature of God's word. Well, here we see the law of the Lord as God's word is perfect. And then it tells us what it does. What does God's word do? Converts the soul. And that's how we need to view God's word. God's word, we know in the scriptures, it says it's living and active. It's God's current word. It's not some old historical book of just information given to us. And it's not a religious book of just religious information given to us. It is God's living word. It's active. It's actually converting the soul. People are converted by the scriptures. Oh, may someone be converted by the scriptures this morning. Someone in this room. It's actively converting, converting the soul. So we see here that God's word is sufficient for salvation It's sufficient for salvation. We don't need to rely upon great evangelistic conferences for people to be saved. We don't need to be waiting for the next evangelist to see if he's going to be close enough for me to take my lost loved one to, so maybe they'll get saved there. We don't need to be relying upon great evangelist concerts for people to be saved. We have God's word. We don't need the best arguments. You don't need to be the best preacher for someone to be saved. All you need is God's word. All you need is God's word. It says in the Bible, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's look at at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And this has, has a similar structure to what we saw in Psalm 19 and 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. It has a similar structure to that passage. In that God's word is identified, then it's described, then we see what it does. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So here we see God's word is identified as all scripture, all scripture. This is both the old and the new covenant, the old and the new testament, rather. This is the old and the new testament. This is all scripture. That's how God's word is identified. Then it's described as being given by inspiration of God. 
Inspiration of God. Inspire means to breathe into. Breathe into. But we're not to think of God's word as something that man has written and then God breathes into what man wrote. So then God made it his word by breathing into it. That's not the way it is. God's word isn't isn't God's word because God breathed into something. God's word is a very breath of God. It's a very breath of God. It says that it's given by inspiration of God. Given by inspiration there comes from the Greek. It's theonoustos. Well, theos is God. And then noustos. We can think of pneumatic tools, tools that work with compressed air. So when we see given by inspiration of God, we really need to just see that as being God breathed. The scriptures are God breathed air, the, the very words of God. Then we see what God's word does, how the scriptures are sufficient for spiritual growth and how we and in how we are to live as Christians. It says it is profitable in these four areas, profitable for doctrine. That's our teaching. We see that it reproves us to reprove is to correct or not to correct, but more like to rebuke, actually to reprove to reprove is to show where we are wrong is to show our error. And we need that. Anybody who doesn't want to see their error will never be brought out of it. They'll just stay in that error all their lives. They'll live and die in that error, in that, and it, it may be their destruction, their ultimate peril in hell. So God's word gives us doctrine. It reproves us. It shows us where we are wrong, and it brings the proper correction that we need. It corrects us, and then it instructs it instructs us in how we are to live as Christians. And then we see. The scripture's sufficiency. We see it clearly in the next verse there in verse 17. How the scriptures are sufficient for God's people. It says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Complete. Do we want to be complete Christians? Well, if you want to be a complete Christian, you don't need to go anywhere other than outside of God's word or anywhere outside of God's word. If you want to be a complete Christian, you'll find that in the scriptures and God's very word given to you. That's how you'll grow in your faith. That's how you'll grow closer to God. You don't need some special class. You don't need some certain program to go and sign up to. You don't need to go give your money somewhere and and join this this big, long, long Bible study. If you have God's word, you'll grow and you'll be a complete Christian. You don't need some second blessing. You don't need some some secret gift, some spiritual gift. If it's given to you by God, We'll take it because God gives us gifts and God grows us and God blesses us and matures us. But you don't need to be seeking anything outside of God's word for your growth. And then it says that says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, every good work. There isn't a good work that the Christian must do that God's word isn't able to equip him for. It equips us for every good work. And the scriptures also point us to Christ. They point us to Christ, not to morality. We don't use the scriptures as giving us debating material. We don't use the scriptures to just give us insight in a certain area other than pointing us to Christ. The scriptures point us to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The scriptures testify of Christ. 
throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they show us that Jesus Christ must be at the center of our lives. He must be at the center of our worship, at the center of our belief, at the center of every area of our life. There is no area of our life that we can have be secular, that we can have be without loving Jesus Christ and, and, and worshiping him. And if there is any area in our life that is not yielded to Jesus Christ, well, then we need to restructure that area of our life so that it is yielded to Christ, so that Jesus is at the center of it. Well, look with me at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another? As you walk and are sad. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these last days or in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and Our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all, the, in all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus took time to go through all, it says, through all the scriptures. Well, when you look at all that's said about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, it's a lot. There's a lot said about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But it says that our Lord conversed with them and spoke to them of all the things. I mean, it, it, it was so wonderful that even later on, a little bit after the same chapter, they talk amongst themselves and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? As he spoke to us these things. And they didn't even know it was Jesus at that time. So he spoke to these disciples. He took the time. How long did this take to go through all of the Old Testament? Well, it must have taken a long time. It says there in verse 13, it was a seven mile journey. It takes a long time to walk seven miles. How long is that? I googled it. It says about two hours. That's, that's a long, a good long walk. And that's the way our Lord is. If you take time out of your schedule to seek him, he will be there. He will be with his people. 
we don't even know who these two disciples were. It says Cleopas. I, I see Cleopas there. I don't know who Cleopas was. He could have said, well, you know what? I have a lot to tell you, but let's gather all the saints together and then I'll tell all of you. No, he took the time to speak to those two while they're walking on this road to Emmaus. That's how Jesus Christ is, our, our compassionate Savior. Dealing with each one of his saints in a gracious and compassionate way. It says that he took the time to explain to these two disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In the same chapter, look at verse 44. Verses 44 and 45. Later on, as Jesus is speaking with with the other disciples, it, it says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. You see how he says there, it is written, it is written again. That's how Jesus talks about the scriptures. That's how he spoke about the Old Testament. It is written. And that's how we need to, how we need to view the scriptures. It is written. It's God's word written to us. It's authoritative. It's firm and established. It's unchanging. And there's nowhere we need to look for any truth from God other than through God's word. So he opened up their understanding, it says there, so that they would comprehend the scriptures. And then he said that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. He's reminding them of these things, things that he had already taught them before he was crucified. That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to, to rise from the dead. And, and uh, someone can be here and someone can, can say, okay, I hear you. The scriptures are sufficient for conversion. The scriptures are sufficient for salvation. And someone's response can be, well, I believe in the scriptures. I know it's God's word. I, I've, I've always believed that the scriptures were God's word. Well, why am I not converted? I'm a believer. How do I not have this assurance that the Lord has made me his? Well, then we, we, we can keep reading there in verse 47 of this chapter. What our Lord is saying. Verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem and all the way to America, San Antonio, Elmendorf. Repentance and remission of sins must be preached. Well, God calls for us to repent. God calls for us to, to turn, to turn from our ways, to turn from our sin. And maybe that's what needs to be happen. Maybe that's what needs to happen in some people. You believe, but maybe you don't believe enough in order to repent, to truly turn to God. The repentance and remission of sins must be preached. Well, this is the sufficiency of scriptures, and this is, this is a primary doctrine that we must hold to. We cannot, comp- we cannot compre- compromise in this area. There must be no compromise, you know, adding to it, no taking away from it. We must teach it, we must believe it, we must preach it. Brother Pat Horner said that when he went to Mexico, the first message that he preached while he was there was that the word of God is true. And then he said that when he went to India, the first message that he preached was that the word of God is true. And if it's true, then it's entirely sufficient for us in all these things. Well, let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and we can